Hello, friends. And welcome to In the Know with Exonify, your 25-minute TLDR into the biggest topics impacting the workplace today. I'm JD. I'm the Chief Learning Architect at Exonify. And we typically, on our show, we answer a lot of your questions. But today, I'd like to start off with a question for you, especially for everyone watching live on LinkedIn right now. The question is, which of the following topics do you think we should talk about today? Do you think we should talk about A, vending machines, B, why Top Gun Maverick may be the best sequel to any action movie, C, how to use multiple choice questions to foster learning and knowledge retention, or D, none of the above? Which do you think we should talk about today? Of course, the answer is C. We're here to talk about the power of good multiple choice questions, but that's the problem. The problem is the answer is always C or the longest option with all of the workplace appropriate language. And that's the problem we're gonna solve with you here today. We're joined by Patty Shank, author of the book, Write Better Multiple Choice Questions to Assess Learning, who's gonna help us figure out why writing a good multiple choice question is just so dang difficult or at least it seems. But before we say hello to Patty, let's take a look at our feature story. Is there any other educational tactic out there that strikes fear into the hearts of people like the multiple choice question? Case in point, some of you right now are freaking out because that's a ballpoint pen and not a number two pencil sitting on top of the test answer sheet in the picture on the slide right there. The damage has clearly been done. And that's something we always think about in the work we do at Exonify, because question-based learning is at the core of our learning approach. But there are a few things we need to do before introducing questions as part of people's daily training experience. We have to make sure people understand why, why questions are an important part of workplace learning. And we need to make sure the questions themselves are of the highest possible quality. We've all taken multiple choice tests where the questions are, or the answers are ridiculously simple, or maybe the questions feel like they're obviously designed to trick us. So to use questions like we do at Exonify, we need to first help organizations move beyond a world where assessments are written at the last minute and everyone's required to get 100% on every exam in, in two attempts, of course, multiple attempts, of course, or else you might end up on the naughty list. We need to move beyond that world. And frontline workers around the world have actually answered 518 million questions in Exonify so far this year. That means we're on pace to exceed a billion questions answered. But before we talk about what makes a good multiple choice question a good multiple choice question, let's take a look at how many how many ways Exonify uses questions to improve workplace performance. And it's a segment that I'm calling Exonify. Lots of questions, even more answers. Most people know Exonify for its reinforcement training, the use of questions to reinforce knowledge. The typical Exonify training session includes three to four questions that ask an employee to apply their knowledge to solve a problem. Now, this knowledge could be related to something they just learned in training, or it could be something they learned a long time ago, but they need to remember long term. Exonify uses a combination of space learning and retrieval practice to ensure long-term knowledge retention so employees are always ready to apply what they've learned on the job. But reinforcement is just one of the ways we use questions. We also use questions to teach new information through application. We use questions as part of formal assessments with all of the familiar features, things like passing scores and retakes. 
We use questions as part of certification programs to make sure people walk away with the right information after completing, completing compliance training. And we also use questions within our survey programs to measure anything and everything about employee sentiment. Questions aren't just core to the Exonify learning experience. They actually power the Exonify platform. And that's because the ongoing use of questions allows you to pick up lots of data about people, what they know, and how their knowledge is changing over time. The first time someone answers a question, we establish a baseline. This helps us determine where to focus continuous learning and reinforcement for each person. Then, as they continue to answer questions of increasing difficulty, we're measuring their current knowledge. So instead of an assessment that maybe kinda but not really measures if a person's knowledge improved after training, questions actually help us determine what someone knows right now. But performance isn't just about what you know, it's also about your willingness to apply what you know in the moment. And that's why you actually rarely find a submit button attached to an Exonify question. Instead, we ask employees to self-assess their confidence in their answer. And this gives us another critical data point to use across the learning experience. Now, most organizations don't use nearly as many questions as those that use Exonify. So we built an entire marketplace to help out with over 650 topics, most of which include video and questions to help LND teams get started with this approach. 60% of our customers use the marketplace, and so far this year, their employees have answered more than 54 million questions, about 10% of the total that I mentioned earlier. And one of the best parts of our marketplace, as compared to other off-the-shelf providers, is that the data collected through question-based learning helps us understand the impact of the training. Because people use Exonify every day, we can tell which topics are being prioritized across the community based on engagement numbers. Then we can determine, is the content actually working based on our measurements of knowledge lift over time? So here's a real quick example. Here's the list of most prioritized marketplace topics for the year, not based on how many organizations added the content to their platform, but based on how it's being used in terms of questions answered. And the most answered topic, which is an unfortunate sign of the times, is actually how to survive an active shooter event with more than 4.2 million questions answered to date. But we're not just measuring the use of the content, remember, we're also measuring change through the use of that content. So here you can see as an example, employees who completed training in foodborne illness, which is something I want every employee who handles food to know a whole lot about. They're actually 30%, 38% more knowledgeable today than they were to begin with. And by begin with, I mean immediately after they were trained on the topic. So what we're doing is we're bumping up the knowledge and then we're sustaining it long-term by using questions to reinforce that knowledge. So to wrap up, questions are a great assessment tool. They can do a lot more though than just quiz or test. Questions give people a chance to practice applying their knowledge in a risk-free way that fits easily into the workflow. And the more people practice, the more ready they'll be when it comes time to apply what they've learned. And that's today's feature story. Today's feature story was quite literally brought to you by Exonify Reinforce. Exonify Reinforce makes sure your employees remember the most important things they need to know on the job using bite-sized bursts of information and proven learning science techniques. Grow and sustain frontline knowledge from onboarding and beyond with personalized adaptive learning. To build a confident, high-performing frontline team with learning that always sticks, head over to exonify.com slash product slash reinforce. And now I'm excited to welcome our guest, Patty Shank. 
Patty is an internationally known and award-winning workplace learning expert, instructional designer, researcher, and author who is constantly listed on the list of most influential people in e-learning. Side note, she included the word regularly multiple times in her bio, and I can't say the word regularly as you can tell, so I've replaced it. Patty just heads up. Patty's also a familiar, regularly speaking, at training and learning technology conferences and is the author of multiple books, many of which are sitting behind me, including this one, Write Better Multiple Choice Questions to Assess Learning. Her books offer practical tactics for improving outcomes based on training and other research. Patty Shank, you're in the know with Exonify. I'm really glad to be here, and I'm super glad to be with you, JD. We've uh, seen each other from time to time at conferences, and you're one of the most humorous people in our field, and I love that about you. Hey, sound effects. But appreciate, <laughs> thank you so much. We regularly see one another out and about when we've been out and about. We but do. Let's, let's dive right in to the question on everyone's mind. And by everyone, I mean everyone who's hanging out with us in the middle of the, the day to talk about multiple choice questions. Why do MC questions get such a bad rap as part of the L&D toolkit? Is there something wrong with the format or is it about how they're being used in learning programs? I think it's how they're being used. Um, in, in my experience, multiple choice questions have a bad rap because people don't understand them. And they're so poorly written and everyone has experience with how poorly written they are. So if all you get, um, if someone's cooking for you and everything they cook for you um, tastes terrible, you're gonna think that they're a terrible cook. There may be other reasons. But as you said earlier, questions are at the heart of learning um, and it, 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 act, it actifies, it, it makes our brain have to think and that's deep processing and deep processing is exactly what we need when, when we're training um, or designing. Absolutely. And it's, it's hard to find. Uh, an L&D professional, instructional designer, content developer, really anyone uh, throughout the, or, uh, the enterprise or the industry that hasn't had to handle, write, deliver multiple choice questions. And they're, they're used in assessment, they're used in reinforcement programs, but they're usually the last thing we do as part of content development, right? We they shouldn't be. In, in fact, I just finished with a client um, and we're doing training on wildland firefighting um, in the Western US mostly. And, um, you know, it, we, wrote, we wrote the objectives first, we wrote the questions for them second, and then someone's taking it over and writing the content from those objectives and questions. And she said, I know exactly what, question, what content I need now. Great point. So we, we talk a lot about making sure we have objectives aligned to outcomes, aligned to business results, aligned to what people actually have to do on the job. Right. But then how are we going to assess if the training helped us accomplish that, if people are ready to do that? And that's where I think this question, or conversation around multiple choice questions really fits in. So I, I'm curious to get your thought on why people are so good at writing bad multiple choice questions. Is it that hard? to write a good multiple choice question. You all know what I'm talking about out there. You've taken multiple choice <laughs> tests that just, as you said earlier, the cooking's not great. So is it is it that hard or are we looking at the content format wrong? Um, I, it is hard, 
Um, it's really hard, actually. Um, when I started doing this maybe 20 years ago, um, and I started looking at the research, they're hard. Um, it's really easy to write a bad multiple choice question. Um, and if you're doing it as the last thing, and everyone knows that when you've got a task to do that you don't like doing, you're going to do it as quickly as possible and get it off your plate. Um, and um, they're hard to write well, very hard. But if you can write a good multiple choice question, you can write good questions in general. And I have students in my course who take this to learn how to write good scenarios because um, it's the same thing. They all, you know, you have to pick one answer um, and you're not writing your answer. And by the way, for those of you who think writing your own answer is say 300% better than picking an answer, that's also an issue of writing them poorly. Um, the, the research shows that if we do this really well, it, it, they can be considered certification level questions. So how do you, we're going to dig into a lot of the things people maybe are tripping up on when yeah. they're creating multiple choice questions, but to start, how do you define a good MC question? What is a good question? So a good question has at least these two characteristics. And they're both really hard. One, they measure the right things, not, not the things that are easiest to measure, but they measure important aspects of a well-written learning objective. Um, and those aren't easy to do. I teach it um, and people get measurably better during that period of time, but you have to keep practicing and they are written correctly so that they don't trip you up Trick, tricking people is an absolute no-no, um, and and they're written in a way that's easy to understand what it is you're asking. Right, because you shouldn't, learning should be challenging, but the challenge should be in applying your knowledge, not in understanding what you're being asked to do right. or in how fact, you navigate. Right, Schrock and Coscarelli, who wrote probably the best hard to read book <laughs> on, on this subject, which is why I ended up writing the book. Um, right, that book um, said that your questions should measure the actual intellectual task that someone has to do while doing the task um, and, not, and not remember whether they remember the content. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to throw some, I want to throw some challenges at you. So I'm okay. going to, I'm going to toss some common practices associated with MC questions. And if you could tell us, is this a good practice? Is this a bad practice? Kind of how should we be thinking about these ideas? Okay. So we're going to start with probably the most commonly used answer option, all of the above slash none of the above. Is this a good idea? Bad idea? What are your thoughts? Bad. It, it's bad because, because um, people who are good at taking tests know that all of the above is usually the correct answer and none of the above is pretty much never the correct answer. Why on earth would you ask a question that tells you nothing about what people know? When you think about it that way, it's so obvious, right? But then right, you get, kind of get trapped into using some of these common practices, but- uh, Right, uh, they are bad. And I think we, it's a great example of underestimating the savviness of the employee or the person taking the test because 
I don't know if anyone else out there did this. You learn how to break tests, right? Especially right. as part of being in school. So when you see certain indicators in a question, you lean in that direction just because of the thousands of questions you've answered, it's gotten you this far. So right. That's right. Why, good reason not to do all yeah, slash the above. That's either it's a clue. Yeah. Actually, and absolutely. we don't we don't want clues. <laughs> totally. It's not a scavenger hunt. So <laughs> next one. Uh, what about and uh, questions that have lots of answer options? So we're think we're talking like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, just a lot of options there. Um, generally, no, not a good good um, choice. The research and it, this research is really uh, clear and very current that the best number of answer choices is three, and that means two two of them are wrong, one is correct. There, there are lots of nuances here, though, where there are some answer type, some question types where you might want a bunch of answer choices, but it's not a tip. Typically, you wouldn't use. Most people don't even know about those types of questions. Got it. Got it. Let's let's talk about true false questions now. What are your thoughts on true false questions? Um, the I found this kind of fascinating. The research says they're okay, but at least half of the research says they're not okay. So that's where we've got a bunch of opinions. My own opinion is don't use a true false question on a certification type exam um, because it's really easy to answer them correctly. Um, your, your chances of answering them correctly is high. Um, but if you're just doing um, knowledge checks and that sort of stuff, um, they're fine. There's something poetic about the fact that the research behind a 50-50 question is also 50-50 in terms of its <laughs> Yes, uh, I would agree with efficacy. that. Um, what about answer options that have varying lengths? So you have diff basically a different total number of words in your answer and distractor options. Again, that's a clue. Um, and we don't want any clues whatsoever. And this is while I'm answering this, some, some of the reasons I'm giving are the reasons why it's hard to learn to write these. Um, but, but with answers of various lengths, um, we know that the longest answer is usually correct. Yeah, that's the one that the legal and compliance team shoved a lot of the, the special language into, right? So right. often, again, like you said, another clue, that means you're not applying your knowledge, you're just spotting correct answers. Right, which... and we don't want people to be able to spot correct answers. In fact, for a test to be valid or more valid, um, we need people to not be able to spot the correct answer unless they already know. Absolutely, especially making sure that I think there's a, an important point to be made around the reason we're doing this, right? The reason we're using the question is to help people learn, apply their knowledge, retain, and it's not an exercise in checking the box to make sure everyone gets a passing score, right? right? That's a, a, an important distinction to make. And I think it's especially important with, with what I talked about around Exonify, using questions to help people learn and reinforce knowledge long-term. If people need to spot the answers, we're not reinforcing anything. We're just basically challenging people's test-taking ability right. as opposed to reinforcing critical job knowledge. Right. I have one more, one more for you, my, potentially my favorite. Uh, which of the following is not? So questions that are stated in a negative way. This is a really interesting um, insight. No, those are not good either. And, and the reason is 
that although people see the word not, and you've even capitalized it to make it obvious that it, that there's a not in there, um, people tend to answer the question as if the not isn't in there and get it wrong, even though they know the correct answer. And one of the things we don't want is for people to know the content and not get the question correct. So it's just it's just a cognition issue. Yeah, the way so, I tend to think about it is you're you're forcing someone to think backwards, and that has right. to be the least scientific way to explain that, right? But just right. the idea of I'm flipping my understanding of the information, and again, you're making it hard for me to understand what you're asking me to do, not right. challenging what I understand and what my knowledge and ability to apply that knowledge. Right. It, it's it's hard to answer those questions, and we don't want. I think Schrock and Coscarelli said this as well is we don't want answering the question to be any harder than the cognitive task they're, they're doing um, to answer it. Great point, great point. Now I know you break this down in, in great detail in the book, but can you walk us through at a high level, what is the process then for writing a good multiple choice question? So, so the very first thing you need to do, and you need to do this because if you don't, your questions are likely to be bad, is to figure out what you're trying to measure. And so the best way to do that is to first write all of your learning objectives and to write them in, in a certain way so they are performance objectives and we know exactly what someone needs to be able to do. And then we can use those questions, the, the learning objectives, we can use those to come up with what are the most important things people need to be able to do when they're doing that task or thing? Um, and so that's where they come from. Um, you know, like you talked about, I, I've written a ton of, of multiple choice questions on uh, foodborne illness. Uh, my background's in healthcare, and just I've just done a bunch of them, and we. So one of the learning objectives is that you that you do the things that are necessary to reduce you causing foodborne illness. And so from there we know well what what is it that that food servers do that can cause foodborne illness and then we ask questions about those. So that's the very first thing. The second thing is to pick a format. Um, most of our formats should be the typical multiple choice question. Everyone knows how to answer those. Um, and so we, we pick a format, but there are some, there are some really nifty um, formats that are really good for specific purposes. Um, and so sometimes we, we might want to use that. And then to write the correct answer first, because that's always the easiest and then use the process I explain, which comes directly from research to write the distractors. And I think most instructional designers out there, and I know the Exonify team will agree that writing realistic distractors that actually challenge people's ability is often the hardest part of that. Process. It's the hardest, but, but the good news about this JD is that research, research this, this research, this body of research is super applicable. It's, easy to apply. It's not easy to do the whole, th the whole process. Um, it's quite learnable. Look, when I first learned to use Storyline, I was like, huh, 
what am I doing next? Where, you know, what do I click on? But after you become reasonably proficient at this, it, it becomes pretty easy. Awesome. My last question for you is, and I know one of the recommendations I would have is grab a copy of Patty's book, but what's your recommendation for L&D professionals who want to get better at writing good multiple choice questions? Um, I wrote the book because there isn't one. I mean, I'm not saying there are no, there are no books on assessment and there are no books on multiple choice questions. Look, if you already know how to write multiple choice questions and you want really a really good, just a tome of what the research says on this, Schrock and Coscarelli's book is probably the best, especially in the training world. But there's other books from Haladina and, and other multiple choice researchers. They're not that easy to read. Uh, they assume you are also a researcher because they're writing for researchers um, and, and or people who need this research. Um, so I finally, uh, people kept asking for the manual for the course I teach. If you go to my website, which is pattyshank.com and Patty is spelled with an I, um, you will get you will get to the page that describes the course. Um, either either take the course or if you get in touch with me um, and and want to put your whole team through, um, I'll give you a significant discount on that. Um, and I've done that most of the people who take my course come with a team of eight or ten or twelve people. Um, somewhere around that. Um, that's the that's the best way. Um, and if the course is too expensive for you, get the book. <laughs> great recommendations, great point, great service to the professional community, in my opinion. So thank you, thank you so much, Patty, for hanging out with us today, sharing your insights in what is a seems like a simple but is very challenging it and is. meaningful part of workplace learning practice. So you kind of mentioned, but how can Thanks, people Jimmy. reach out to you if they're interested in the book, interested in your course, want to follow your work? How can they reach out? Probably the best place to find everything that I have out there is on pattyshank.com and it's P-A-T-T-I-S-H-A-N-K as, as you can see on the screen, um, .com. And um, I'm pretty easy to reach uh, by email also. It's patty at pattyshank.com. Awesome. Keeping it simple. Love it. Again, thank you so much, Patty, for joining us today. And thank you to everyone for watching today's episode. If you enjoyed your time with us today, be sure to check out our past episodes. You can find the entire In The Know collection at the Exonify YouTube channel. You can also listen to the audio version of In The Know with Exonify on your favorite podcast app. And we may not have a new episode next week, but that doesn't mean you can't connect with the Exonify community. Join us on Thursday, June 16th for Exonicom Retail. It's a half-day virtual event that brings together L&D, HR, and operational leaders to explore the trends and truths and transformations affecting retail right now. So you're going to hear from experienced leaders at Dollar General, Foot Locker, Ashley Stewart, Briscoe Group, Zebra Technologies, More Retail, and plenty more. Register for free right now at exonify.com. And then, two weeks from today, join us for the next episode of In The Know. We'll be joined by Ingrid Carreras from Sonnet Insurance, who's going to share her insights into applying curation and AI-powered authoring tools to accelerate content development in a fast-changing, highly regulated business. Until then, I've been JD. Now you're in the know. And always remember to ask yourself the important questions. Like, why didn't they include the word gullible in the dictionary? I'll see you next time.